have you ever wondered how women of color are affected by the society we live in and fertility treatment? So fertility treatment, as we know, is really difficult to access for many people for financial reasons, but there's even more to it than that for the black community. Shaquita Lockley is our guest tonight, and she is going to talk to us about all of the issues that black women face when they have infertility issues, when they want to use donor conception, when they have gynecological issues. She's also going to talk about black men's perspectives and how things really need to change. She also has other ideas for agendas in the future, and she'll talk about all of that. And she's going to talk about her film, Eggs Over Easy which is a fantastic documentary that was picked up by Oprah Winfrey. So listen to this podcast. I think you'll really learn a lot and I think it will inspire you to raise this conversation and help us move the needle in the right direction. Welcome to Building Your Family. This is a podcast about donor conception, surrogacy, fertility treatment, and all the ways that the modern family is built. I'm your host. I'm Lisa Schumann. I'm a therapist, an author, a researcher, and I am passionate about helping people have a better journey to parenthood and a better parenting experience. And on today's episode, we have Shaquita Lockley. So if you don't know Shaquita, she is a fantastic person and she is an executive producer and director who recently won an award and I met her that evening at the Night of Hope event. Night of Hope is an event for Resolve and Resolve is a national infertility organization, which is an incredible organization. If you haven't accessed their information, please go on their website. Please take a look at our previous episodes with both the chair and the director of Resolve. It's an amazing support organization and Shaquita won the award for her advocacy in helping women of color find a better path to parenthood. And so through her movie, Eggs Over Easy, she helps us understand all of these issues that we're going to talk about tonight and some more. So I'm going to introduce you, uh, Shaquita, and let you talk a little bit about yourself. Welcome, and thank you so much for your patience and persistence in um, getting this evening to work out. So thank you. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. Um, technical difficulties always happen, and we are just here for it. <laughs> so I'm glad. <laughs> okay. I'm glad we're able to, to to make this work tonight. A little bit about myself. I went to Spelman for undergrad. I got a degree in English. I went to Emory University. Both schools are in Atlanta, by the way. I went to Emory University. Got a master's in film studies. Always only plan to be a producer. I did not plan to be a filmmaker. But when I went in for my um, annual pap smear, my gynecological exam, right after my uh, 40th birthday, my doctor looked at my charts and said, Ms. Lockley, you have a birthday coming up. Your eggs are turning 41. What do you want to do with them? And I did not know. No one had ever asked wow. me that question. Um, I'm a type A person. I plan things. I like. I am a planner. So if I had ever had the question, I'm sure I would have had a plan, but nobody ever asked me. I didn't know I should be thinking about doing something with my egg. I'm not married. So it just, it just was never a question. And once she asked that question, I went down a rabbit hole, a very dark, bleak rabbit hole. Um, And sometimes it was scary going down this rabbit hole of just so many questions with very few answers. And I kept wondering why are black women talking about this? So all of my friends, friends, family, Friends of friends, 
five degrees of separation, three degrees of separation. Um, we're always having issues on this on this reproductive spectrum, and it could be from um women who wanted to tie their tubes and couldn't, all the way to women who wanted to have children and couldn't, and we just weren't having the conversation. So my plan was to do a short film, which was going to be about fifteen minutes, cost about fifteen thousand, and it was something I could manage myself, pay for myself, just to say like, girls, pay attention. Do you know what is happening with fibroids? Do you know that you should have a plan for your eggs? Do you know what insurance um you need to make sure that this you're able to freeze your eggs or have IVF? And it was going to be 15 minutes. And I talked to a handful of friends about it. And each of them would say, well, you know our friend such and such, or you know our sorority sister, or you know this person or my cousin. And so my interviews kept growing and growing and growing until we reached about five hours of content, which is excessive for a film. <laughs> so um, we, we um, whittled it down to just a two-hour film, and we got picked up by the Oprah Winfrey Network, and we aired last January, Eggs Over Easy, Wonderful. Black Women and Fertility. Wonderful. Thank you. Fantastic. That is Thank so you. wonderful. Congratulations. That's amazing. That's so fantastic. So I'm so excited to hear that, but sorry to hear that this is the way that this unraveled for you. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people have come up to you since then or written to you or asked you about this film. And how has that evolved? How have you gotten the word out? How did you, how did Oprah Winfrey find you? How did you get the film publicized and all of that? Okay, so I'll first to to the first um, part of your question, um, how has it evolved? It's so fantastic now because it's been about seven years. It took us seven years to make the film. So it's been a while. And now people are sending me pictures of their babies. That is how long it's it's been um, since we were out trying to get investors and trying to get the show picked up. That is how long it's been where we raised the raised the the alarm, sounded the alarm for these women. And many times, especially with black women, like you've gone to college, you've gotten the degrees, you're working your way up your career, and this wasn't a, something you were thinking about. So just bringing the concept of pay attention to your reproductive health, figure out if you have infertility, just putting it um, somewhere where they can pay attention, that kind of encouraged them to go ahead and start their family building. So I am getting baby pictures, toddler pictures, um, the baby that we have in the film. He's in the first grade now. So that is the evolution of this film. But wow. to your question of how we got started or how Oprah and her Oprah Winfrey's team picked us up. So during COVID, and as I mentioned, we'd been working on this film. Every studio at this point had told us no. Even the Oprah Winfrey Network, they told us no early on with one version of the film um, and gave us some notes to tweak it. We took the notes and we tweaked it. So now it's COVID. And at, right before COVID, I was I live in Atlanta, so I was flying back and forth to L.A. So my executive, one of my executive producers, my producing partner, Felicia Fant, she lives in L.A. So I would fly back and forth to L.A. to have all these meetings um, with agencies and networks, just trying to get some traction to to get someone to air the film. No, every time it was a no. So COVID hits, I can't fly to L.A. anymore. So we brainstorm, OK, how do we bring people to us? Because this message has to get out like we couldn't figure out a path. And now COVID hits and we're all locked inside. So we decided to use it to our advantage. Felicia, she's a publicist by trade. So she's brilliant in terms of how to publicize something and market it. We started doing Facebook brunches on the weekends. 
So hmm. we wouldn't show them the film. We would have like small groups, um, like maybe a physician's group or maybe a lawyer's group, um, just different pockets of people we could gather. And we would let them screen it privately. And then we would all come to Facebook and have these conversations with the general public. And we were thinking we would maybe get like 100 people. The first, the, I think our first week we saw maybe 1,500. Then we would see 2,500. Then we would see 3,000. Like this crowd of people on Saturdays, they would just gather for an egg brunch because eggs is cute and they go with eggs or like eggs mm-hmm. and brunch go together. So they would just gather for these brunches and then they would tell their friends and tell their friends. Well, one friend who was watching, a friend of a friend is watching this conversation that we're having with all these black women on Facebook. And she sends a note to me by way of a friend to say, hey, can I send this to my old boss? She's at a network that I think would be interested. Well, who is your, I didn't know. Like, who's the old boss? What's the network? I didn't even ask. I just said yes and sent it to her. I get an email from the Oprah Winfrey Network, like maybe two days later, from this wonderful woman named um, Robin Latiker. And she's like, we love it. Can I buy it? Let me send it up the chain of command and, and see if we can buy this wow. and we acquire it. So by the time it made it to the team that um, was going to acquire this woman named Mary Beth, she's lovely as well. Um, by the time it made it to her office, the president of the network, Tina, had already sent a note like, hey, this is coming coming through the pipelines. Um, take a look at it. I think it's something we should we should look into because our other executive producer, D'Angela Proctor, She's like a Hollywood producer. She's been doing it for years. So once she saw the film, she came on board and was like, is there anything I can do to help? And she's also a Spelman alumna, which I'll talk to in a minute in terms of the network that we use to get the film made. But D'Angela's like, what can I do to help? And when we told her, she put in a call to the head of Oprah Winfrey Network, uh, Tina. And Tina had already sent a note to her team, like, if this comes through, Give it a second look, like just make sure you're paying attention to it. So by the time Robin from our Facebook connection sent it up the up the ladder, it was met with the president's approval and they bought it. They like they licensed it immediately. Nothing in television happens immediately. So I don't want to say immediately for um the, the lay person to think it was just like in two days. No, it still took months of paperwork, but they came on board. And by the end of that year, we had to deal with them which was just wonderful. And then to speak to the network that it took to happen. So I mentioned that I'm a, I'm an alumna of Spelman College. All of the producers are. So, and that, we didn't all go to school together, but we all had something in common in wanting to get this message out to Black women. So D'Angela, she's um, Spelman, and I mentioned Felicia already. Our other executive producer is Keisha Knight-Pulliam. So yes. Keisha had also gone to Spelman a few years well, several, several years after um, I was there, but we live in the city. We know the same people. We're in the same sorority. So when I called Keisha, I was asking her to narrate because at mm. the time we needed narration um, and people like they trust her voice because she was Rudy on the Cosby show for so many years. My my generation, Gen X, we grew up with a Keisha Knight poem as Rudy. And that's a voice that we all kind of gravitate towards. We feel safe there and we trust it. So it made sense for her to, to to narrate this very difficult topic with women who would trust her voice and trust what she had to say. And the trick of what happened, I don't know if it's good or bad, but um, we used it. Keisha ends up needing to freeze her eggs to, to have IVF. And wow. when that happened, so she's she's self-taping. And we knew, like, okay, we could probably use this because 
remember, it's seven years and we're still trying to sell the, the film. So it w- wouldn't be too hard to add this storyline um, of her process. But COVID hit. And that meant that any procedure that wasn't considered like a, a heart attack or yeah. Yeah, an essential procedure could not happen. IVF was not considered essential. So her yeah. process stopped in the middle of the process, like shots, all the mm-hmm. things stopped. So we were able to record that. So not only was she the narrator, she ends up being a part of the film because this was happening to her in real time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. What a roller coaster. What a roller coaster. <laughs> Holy mackerel. So so then Oprah acquires you, and I'm sure you were floating on cloud nine. You were so yes. excited. <laughs> and how fantastic is it that you are have this enormous platform to kind of do mm-hmm. what you want to do, which is educate people. Mm-hmm. And that's so wonderful. And then after that... What happened? Did she air it on her network right away, or how did it get to? We're on Oprah's um, Oprah Winfrey Network and Discovery Plus, but we're about to be somewhere fantastic in at oh. the top of the year. So this is breaking news um, for Lisa's show. Breaking news! Thank you. We will be on Delta Airlines February, March, and April. Wow! So February is Black History Month. March is Women's History Month, and in April we have National Infertility Awareness Week, and we also have um, Black Women's um, Maternal Mortality Week. Uh, the both of those are in April. So February, March, and April for everyone who does not have own or Discovery Plus, or you've not had an opportunity to watch the film, we are bringing it to you internationally, all flights. Thank you so much. Well, I feel very privileged, Shaquita. Thank you. (laughs) That's great. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. That's fantastic. So tell me a little bit about like what your hopes and dreams are for things to change and what you would like to see happen. And, you know, kind of in your you've done so much already to help people. And I'm sure you hear that all the time on social media and everywhere. And it's amazing all you do. Do you have in like certain things that are very personal to you or things that you feel like are really sticking points that you feel are particularly difficult for black women where people just really need to kind of wake up and start moving forward. There are things that still are not moving the needle. Lots of things. If you look at the Momnibus package, it still hasn't been passed in Congress. Pieces of it has been passed, but not enough. So I, I think we always should keep our eye on like the legislation. But to me, that's at a mac- macro level. It's big. And that's not necessarily something that I can do or you, a, a single person can do to move the needle forward. But there are things we can do. And these are the things that are close to my heart in terms of getting the messaging out. So like in the black community, there are lots of things we don't talk about. My mom and her sisters all had hysterectomies. So for for myself, my cousins, my sister, we don't even know what menopause will look like. What is perimenopause? What is our fertility cycle? Like many times people will say, um, you can look and see how your mother's fertility was and yours may be similar to that. Or if she menopause at 55, you may menopause 55. If she menopause or went through the process at 35, your window is probably shortened to have a child if you want one. So it, it becomes like an emergency if you're 30 and your mom menopause at 35, have yourself tested because you may have, your body may do something similar. So because we are, we haven't been having those conversations, 
that has been on my heart heavy. And one of the things that I've seen as an outcome of our film coming out and a couple other films that came out right after ours, the conversation is bubbling a little bit more. So now mm-hmm. when I'm talking to younger girls, they, they know what egg freezing means. My generation, we didn't even know what it was. Like, what does that mean? When Even when the doctor asked me, I didn't know the details of what that would mean. So that's close to my heart that we continue to like have the dialogue, whatever it looks like. And so let's say we talk about all the streamers and all the networks who told us no with eggs over easy. And I look up now where there was nothing out about black women and fertility. We have four or five things now. I think there should be more of those. I always advocate. And if anybody calls and says, can you do a podcast for me? Can you get on my vlog? Can you be in my movie? Because a few more documentaries are coming out. I always say yes, because number one, there's room for everybody. And number two, which is probably number one, everyone needs to talk about this in order to get traction on it. So even with the award from Resolve, here's why that was important. Because that's where allies are. So I may not have access to certain rooms, but if you know the work that I'm doing and you're an ally, you're in that room, say Eggs Over Easy or say the Cade Foundation or say Broken Brown Girl. So there are plenty of people that you can (laughs) like say in the room who aren't in the room with you. And that's what allyship looks like. So I was very, very pleased with Resolve for just saying our name in the room. And as part of my speech, I I think I close with thank you for seeing me. That's not a cliche. That's the reality of they took the time to see the work that we are doing for this marginalized group of women. And that, and even with being here with you now, you are sharing your platform with me. You gave me a seat at your table. You see the work that we're doing and you're making space to, to have this conversation. So we need more of that. Those are the things that like individual people can do. When I look on a bigger level, besides what's happening or not happening in Congress, I also look at the medical community. My doctor is competent. She is a Yale graduate. The reason that she asked me this at 41 and not at 25 is because it's not something that's taught to them in med school. So I really was questioning, like, I think my doctor is brilliant. Why are we having this conversation now mm-hmm. when my AMH is going to be so low that if I even were to try to do IVF, maybe they'll let me do it. Maybe they won't. But the outcome is minimal. Because we've waited this long, but I've been a patient here for a decade. Why are we having this conversation now and not, this was once I started researching, this conversation should have happened a long time ago. So when I started digging in, like, I know she's brilliant. I know where she went to school. Why? Why are you just asking me this now? And I talked to Dr. Karen. She's featured in our documentary. Like, what is the problem? And when we started looking at the root of it, doctors teach, doctors um act in terms of what are based on what they've learned. So if in school, there are five questions that you ask, do you want an HIV test? When is your last cycle? Because so we can test to see if you're pregnant. Would you like to be on birth control? They could add one more question instead of saying, would you like to be on birth control? They could teach them to say, do you have plans for a family? Because asking me if I want to be on birth control is not the same question as, do I have plans for a family? Do I want to have children ever? And the same amount of time that it takes to ask me if I want to be on birth control or which type of birth control is the same amount of time and effort it could take them to ask us, um, what is your plan for having a family? Yes, And that's not happening. And that's something that that is what is taught or not taught in med school. 
Yes. It's not on their, their list to, to ask us. And this isn't just black women. This is all of us. All they women. are not trying to ask us this question. Yes, but that's correct. With black women, they really are asking. They're just like, what birth control would you like? So I think that there are levels. There's the individual level where we can just talk to our family, talk to our friends. I mentor a lot of young women. I have talked to all of them because when you're coming out of college and you're getting a job and let's say you want to work on Wall Street and they offer you a six figure, a nice six figure salary. And then this other company offers you, let's say, a low six figure salary. You have to know to ask them what their insurance policy is. You have to know that because the one that offered you the high 100, if they don't have an egg freezing policy and you know that as a black woman, this is something that you're probably going to need. Just statistically, those are, I'm not making it up. The CDC has numbers. This is how, this is the percentage of black women who get married. This is the percentage of black women who get married after having one or two degrees. This is the percentage. Um, So it's probably going to put you with a group of <laughs> like, just based on numbers that needs infertility support. And if you work for a company that provides that, you add those numbers up. So yes, this company might offer you a higher figure, but they may not have any infertility support for you. No insurance at all whatsoever. The company that offers you a little bit less, once you add the cost of three rounds of IVF or unlimited egg freezing, which some companies like, if you're in media like a Viacom, or even if you're at like a Starbucks, they have very good insurance policies yes. for reproductive health. So that will help you decide, do I take this job that offers me a little bit more, but no support for my quality of life, knowing that I want to be a mom? Or do I take this job? It doesn't offer me as much. But when I calculate the insurance policy, the what my provisions are going to be, what this infertility or fertility rider, reproductive health rider is going to look like, does it equal out now? Well, if someone is graduating from college and they're 22, they don't know to have that conversation. So that is part of what, yes, I talk to lots of folks, but I hone in on my mentees because this is where they are in life, um, where they're making decisions. It's, it's not like, oh, can I get the most, the job that pays me the most because now I can fly myself to Paris. No, you have to look at some other things um, in mm -hmm. terms of your reproductive health and know the plan. Felicia says it all the time. Plan for your um, reproductive health the same way that you plan for your career. Yes. So, yes, you put in the effort. You went to law school. You're going to be a great lawyer and work at partner at a firm and make tons of money. And also, what does the insurance policy look like in terms of your reproductive health? Yes. So those absolutely. are passion points for me. I could talk about them for five more hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if you have another question, yes. feel free. Yeah. So, you know, we find that that's like, you know, these are are significant issues for women, right? Like your gynecologist should at 25 say, what's your plan at your, at your pap smear at, because they have your captive attention, right? Every year, your annual exam at 27, at 30, if, you know, every time, what are you doing? What are you planning? And yes, I agree with you. I think people need to plan for it like they plan for their career and we all take it for granted. But I guess I'm also wondering, Shaquita, because you highlight so many things and you've kind of alluded to what happens in your family. And I guess mm -hmm. there's two things that I was thinking about that it, that are, you know, issues that are coming up a lot. And I see in, not just for Black women, but in the BIPOC community, that there's a lot of issues with regard to donor conception. We don't have enough people of color for egg donors or sperm donors. 
And also, we are in a situation where you're not always feeling, depending upon you know your family and your background, so comfortable just openly talking about your fertility journey, right? So I guess I was wondering about how you're feeling about how those two areas are progressing. It's very interesting. I can tell you how I'm feeling about it, I, and I don't have answers to it. So I'll start there. Um, I first noticed or paid attention to the lack of sperm donors, black sperm donors, maybe three years ago. A friend called and said, is there a sperm bank in Atlanta? Because Atlanta is full of black folk. So this would be a, like we have a high concentration of black people. So this would you would think this would be a good space or a, a good city to find black sperm. And she couldn't find any anywhere. So she's like, she, it was for a friend. Do you know of a sperm bank that my friend can use to find black sperm? We don't have any in New York. That is what she said. I did connect her with someone, but the numbers were still abysmal and they ended up finding like two options, two strong options in California. And that was when I realized this is a problem. And so I've gone on situations like this, podcasts and panels um, with black men. And here's where I think it's cultural and the same is going to go for eggs. And I'll get to that in a second. Of everyone on the panel, only one of those men said he would consider being a sperm donor and it would need to be for someone who had like cancer or something, like a reason, not just a single woman who wanted to have to be like a Hmm. a mom. If it was medical, if there was a medical reason, he would consider Hmm. it. All of the other ones were like, absolutely not. So it is cultural. It is cultural. And I don't have answers to why it is cultural why our community is so strong against um, sperm donations, but it that is what it is. In terms wow. of egg donations, that's a little bit more invasive. So I understand that it's not something to be taken lightly. And I'll say two things here. So, I, and if I forget, remind me to circle back to the okay. college recruitment. Okay. First thing, um, it's, it's more invasive. You can't just go into a room and uh, have a donation in 30 minutes. Yeah, it's gonna take shots. You have to take, um, you know, the shots to to get your cycle, so that they know when to retrieve the egg. It's a whole thing. It's a process. So many times, unless it's for like your sister who had ovarian cancer, we are not donating eggs mm. unless there's a medical reason. We are probably or, or like an emotional attachment to a reason. We aren't just donating eggs um, like that. And then the second thing. This is a new concept for us. We don't even know that you can donate eggs. So one of the women doctors who was in the film, Dr. Monica, we did a panel at Spelman. And she was explaining to the girls that where she was working at the time, if you did um, two retrievals, the third retrieval, you could keep it and they would freeze the eggs for you in case you ever needed them down the road in your own life. So the first two would be a part of the uh, egg donation. And then the third cycle would be yours to keep. That was new information to me because I, no one ever recruited from, from our school. No, I never saw, I never saw anyone recruit from our school. And when I asked her, she like she listed the names of the schools where they do recruit and HBCUs weren't even on the list. So hmm. if you don't know, you can't do it. But where, how, how would they find out how would black women, especially 25 to 30, 35, where would they find out about egg donation? With sperm donation, I knew of that in college because, like, well, it, for grad school, I went to Emory. Emory is a PWI. 
I knew about it because there would be flyers where you could like tear the phone number off the bottom, like these little vertical yeah. phone numbers. Mm-hmm. You could mm-hmm. tear it off the bottom and pay your tuition with sperm donation. So that was not a novel concept to me. But I never considered or thought that you could do that for eggs. And that was 25 plus years ago. And it still hasn't changed. I've never seen anything on the campus within the past decade at an HBCU that would say, donate your eggs. So we have a low egg donation. The the age where they like to have egg donors, that's college age. They're not recruiting at HBCUs. So no, you're not going to have, you're not going to have black eggs. Wow. There's nobody's asking for black eggs. And wow. what's even more interesting, Eloise, um, Eloise Drain, she owns a surrogacy, the first mm-hmm. surrogacy agency in the state. She tried to be an egg donor and the agency told her, no, thank you. Black women don't need eggs. So she ends up, she eventually becomes a surrogate and she opens her own surrogacy agency in Georgia. But when she just wanted to be an egg donor, she was told that black women don't need eggs. No, thank you. So I think there are lots of um, things at play, a lot of reasons at play as to why we do not have more black egg donors and, and sperm donors, but particularly egg donors. And I don't have an answer for it. I just these are just observations that I've made over the course of this awakening that I've had in reproductive health. What do you think can be done about that, Chiquita? Because there is such a need. I mean, I see so many patients who say to me, what do I do? I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to get a white egg donor or a white sperm donor. That's like, doesn't make sense for my family. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, we have the growing donor conception community who feels very strongly about openness. And mm-hmm. the problem is it puts a lot of women of color in a pressure point because then ha- it's hard enough for them to find a donor to begin with. Nonetheless find a donor who's willing to be open, right? They don't have many choices. So what what do you think we can do about that? So I think we have to destigmatize the topic of donation. With eggs, it's a little trickier because it's, it is invasive. It is an invasive process. It's, mm-hmm. This is basically it's a simple surgery, but it's still a surgery. Like it's a procedure versus, you know, sperm donation. And I think there's just this stigma attached to, to being a sperm donor. So maybe more conversations about it. We don't talk about it. And when it is spoken about, it's not really in a a positive light. Um, I didn't do very much work on um, male infertility factor other than to say it exists. And this is the percentage. I didn't do a lot there. I think if more men, black men knew how many other black men, how many of their brothers are suffering from infertility, then maybe they would be because they would think that this isn't a white woman's problem. This mm. is a, a black woman who doesn't want to marry a black man and she's chasing her career. So let the chips fall where they may. I problem. See. It will become their brother's problem. And if it is their brother's problem, maybe they would care a little bit more about it and not just care, but be intentional with action. So maybe mm. they would become sperm donors if they felt like they were a part of the conversation because this is happening to them and their brothers versus this being the white woman's problem or the black woman who chose not to get married because she chased her career. That was what that was feedback that I got from these all male panels um, where I would be the only woman there. That was the feedback. They don't feel like this is an issue for them. This is not their problem. Hmm. Um, and there was also the, the thought of erasure, which I found interesting and surprising that for black women, we kind of when we choose to be mom, single mom by choice, 
we are erasing black men and they don't want to be erased. That was that was said. So, I, I mean, it gave me pause because I don't have a solution for it, but this is something that they are talking about. So I really feel like if it became their problem as well, in, in the sense of they feel connected to the issue, then maybe there will be a different outcome. Because the one man who said, oh, if, if she had cancer or something or had to have chemo, of course, I would help in that way. So it's not that they won't help. I just don't think the topic has been given to them in a way that they're included in the conversation. It's just, oh, we want your sperm. Oh, for what? Um, and it's not it's not the same conversation that we're having on this side of the aisle. So perhaps we could have a more robust conversation with black men so that they know like over 33 percent of you have male infertility factor. So you're helping your brothers as well as helping black women. So that could be a starting point, Mm -hmm. but I don't have a concrete solution. No. That's interesting. And what do you think are other issues culturally where we haven't kind of been able to kind of bridge the gap that make fertility a big issue that's, you know, not to be talked about or that's shrouded in secrecy or that is embarrassing in some way? Money. Money has been an issue. We live in a country where black women make, the last I checked, it was, well, it was when I did the film, we were at, I think, 63 cents or 61 cents on the dollar of what a white man makes annually. I saw last year, I think it had dropped to like 59%, 59 cents. It moved, it moved maybe one or two pennies. I can't remember which direction, but we are not making 65 cents on the dollar. So when we look at a price, that's already high, even for white women, even for Asian women. Like the price of reproductive health care is expensive. And oh, yes. of course, there are some clinics like CNY, CNY Fertility in New mm-hmm. York. I think it's in upstate New York. They mm-hmm. have really great prices. I don't understand how they could have such great prices in the rest of the country. You know, we don't have great prices in other places. Mm-hmm. So the money part is a factor. So unless all of the clinics have you know, decrease their rates, that's going to remain a problem. The fact that black women are making pennies on the dollar from a white man, that's problematic. But I don't know that we can fix it because that is like systemic to our country. That's not just like a a quick fix. Um, If a bag of chips costs $4 and I'm only making $2 an hour and a white man is making $2.60 an hour, my math is bad, but just work with me. $2.60 $2.60 an hour yeah. is going to be better able to afford this bag of chips than of course, the person yeah. making $2 an hour. So the yeah. financial barriers are very, very real. And sometimes I I don't necessarily lean into the topic because I know it's expensive for everybody. Like you can have the white woman who works at Starbucks and the black woman who works at Starbucks. Hopefully they both have some insurance. But the price of IVF is the price of IVF. So mm-hmm. I try not to you know, harp on the finances too much because I know it's expensive for everybody. But when you put it on paper and really we're making a percentage, pennies on the dollar, it's the same price, but it's not the same price. It's the same price, but this one has 63%, the 63 cents on the dollar versus a full dollar. So those are financial barriers that woven into the fabric of our great nation. And this is where we are. Yeah. Are there other things culturally that make it feel shameful or difficult? Because even, you know, when I see patients who are going through fertility treatment 
and they're, let's say, they're out of money. They've mm-hmm. exhausted everything they have, and now they the only thing left for them is let's embryo donation, let's say, because it's much less expensive because you can use a donated embryo. You don't need an egg donor or a sperm donor. But I can count on you know one hand the member the amount of black families I've seen coming in, and so I I keep thinking where are they, you know how come they're not asking how come I don't see them in my office is it because there's not enough inclusion at the office is it because there's not enough PR out there to kind of educate what what are your thoughts about that so I lean back into our our my culture part of this. And we talk about it in the film. There's just, it's this entire topic is shrouded in shame from slavery to now. And I would say even priests, it, it, it predates slavery, but we live in America. So I'm just going to start there. When the value of a woman who could give birth to children was hired, she sold on an auction block for more yes. than a woman who um, was barren or who was beyond her childbearing years. That didn't go away. <laughs> it didn't go away. So the thought that black women should be able to have children, the thought that we are like that trope, fertile myrtle, it didn't go away. It's so interwoven in who we as black folk are in this country. Part of it is the shame from that. A woman should be able to have a child. You should be able to carry a child. You should be able to birth a healthy baby. That is just a part of what the expectation of womanhood is. I think it's awful. But this is your question, so this is the answer. Um, so there's a shame surrounded by, uh, like enshrouded in the myth that we're supposed to be able to be mothers, to physically birth a child, because you could be a mother without birthing a child. Um, but we're supposed to be able to do that. And when you can't, you don't want to talk about it. The fact that they're not coming into your office is doubly not a surprise, because many of us don't go to therapy. And because in our culture, you talk to Jesus. And that's it. Mm. Or the women who are around your kitchen table. You don't go to therapy. Not all, um, because, you know, we're not a monolithic people. Not all, but many in our culture also shun therapy. So that's twofold. They're not coming to you because you're a therapist, period. And then also this topic is just a difficult one that we do not talk about. Boy, that is so multi-layered with Mm -hmm. issues. Well, I'm certainly glad you're out there to help break some of those barriers, Shaquita. I mean, thank goodness you've done so much already. I really appreciate your perspective. It's a lot to think about. And and tell us, what what is next for you? What are your next steps? Is it going to be in the fertility world or someplace else? I am troubled by the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It keeps me up at night sometimes. I've been watching the news and I probably should turn off the news, but what is happening with that woman in Texas who needs to end her pregnancy or it's not a viable pregnancy, first of all, and her fertility is at risk. And these people in that state, judges, not doctors, they get to decide what happens to her health and she might not be able to have children going forward if she doesn't have this procedure. That kind of thing keeps me up at night because um, I she's recently gone to another state and, you know, had the medical care that she needed. And I think about this woman went through all that and she had the means to pay for a flight to go and, and have medical care somewhere else and to pay for whatever she, she, whatever she needed to pay for. What happens to the girl 
who lives on MLK in whatever urban inner city, who doesn't have a, a money to yes. have a flight to go and get the medical care that she needs in another state. What happens? Yes. Yep. So it bothers me. It keeps me up at night. Even when I look at like IVF and reproductive care, there are times when sometimes more than one embryo is needed to ensure just one healthy baby. Yes. So what happens? The line is so blurry there. What happens if you need to end part of that pregnancy? The language is tricky and slippery. It's nobody's business but your doctor. If the goal is to get to this healthy baby and they, they've started with two embryos and sometimes three, they don't really do three a lot anymore. What happens to this woman? And so that is what is keeping me up at night. I'm I'm working on, I'm trying to work through that and hopefully it ends up being a documentary or something because it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And this was just the one story that got a lot of publicity. Oh, yes. Like it got a lot of eyes on it. Right. What yes, about all the voices that are in the margins? We can't hear them. We can't see their stories. What in the world? And I am, I'm almost 50. So I've lived in, I have never lived in a world without Roe v. Wade because I'm not 50 yet. And it was 50 years old. So I don't know this. I don't know this life. What I do know, and like growing up, my grandma's this little Pentecostal lady and I won't talk your ear off, but this little tiny Pentecostal lady in the Bible belt, (laughs) this word from Georgia. And I asked her, uh, like, what do, what do we as Christians, as people of faith, what do we think about abortion and abortion rights? And she told me a story about her sister who was raped at the age of 14 um, and given a, an abortion with a hanger and turpentine because this was the, the time, that's the time they lived in, um, with the hanger and turpentine. And it ended the pregnancy. But once she became an adult, got married, she could never have kids. And my grandma said. And she's lucky she survived, right? Yeah, she's lucky she survived, really. A hanger, a hanger and turpentine is how they did, how they performed yeah. abortions yeah. Yeah. back in like the 30s. A lot of 40s. people died. Yeah. A lot of people died. So, you know, she was blessed to even live. And once she got married, she could never have kids. And so when I was so asking my grandma, my grandma said, we don't have a heaven or hell to put anybody in. Every woman deserves medical care, the medical care that she needs. And this is from a little Bible Belt woman. So that is kind of how I've always had mm. this. That is how the framework for me of abortion rights, reproductive justice, that is my framework. So when I look at the news, All I can think is every woman deserves the medical care that she needs. Every woman deserves the medical care that she needs, whether it's IVF and them, you know, having to choose which which embryo is viable, um, whether it's the woman whose pregnancy is not viable and she needs to end it, whether it's the woman who is making a choice that she needs to make. She and her doctor decided they need to make to get off my soapbox quickly. um, That is where my head is right now. Shaquita, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. You warm my heart. That's beautiful. Really beautiful. I'm so glad that you're fighting the good fight. And I'm with you a thousand percent. All these people who are out there and all the doctors who are leaving their state because they can't, they're afraid to get arrested. Yeah. You know, and what's happening in this country is just terrifying. So I'm I'm so glad that your your heart and soul is still in it and you still have the energy to talk about it and talk (laughs) about all these really important issues. So so thank you so much for being out there and talking about it. And I hope that we continue to stay in touch and have more of these important conversations because this is so 
Great. Well, thank you so much. And I know we're, we're going to wind down now, but for all of you out there, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. There's so much to unpack. I think Shaquita and I can talk for many hours about these <laughs> subjects, of course, yes. but these are all things we need to move the needle on. And if you can be in touch with Shaquita, I'm sure she would be very happy to have, you know, any um, assistance in any of these areas because, you know, every ounce of effort and every voice voice on the internet matters. And um, her voice has reached enormous heights, as you can see, and we're so grateful for it. So thank you for coming tonight. And where can people find you? So if you're on Instagram, it's Eggs Over Easy Film. Facebook okay. is Eggs Over Easy Film. Our website is Eggs Over Easy Film. Twitter, okay. well, I think it's called X now. It's just Eggs Film. It was tricky with getting the name. So uh-huh. it's Eggs Film if you are a person who is still over there on X. Um, But we're mostly on Instagram and you can find us there. And Lisa, thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing your platform with us. Um, We have work to do. We do have a lot of work to do and we will have to be in touch about it. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for coming tonight. And if you want to reach out to me, you can always find me on familybuilding.net and also on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and all, all of the platforms. I'd always love to hear from you as well. Thank you. And I'll see you next time.